Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Welcome to Three Creeks Church. My name is Joel Trainer, and I get to be the pastor here. And if you are here visiting for the first time, we just want to say welcome. We're sincerely glad that you are here. We know that you could have been anywhere on the face of the earth, but you chose to be here. And so that for that, we're grateful. We're making our way through the book of Ephesians. And we've been here for three weeks so far. This is week four. No, this is week five of Ephesians. And uh, Ephesians... You probably know it as a book of the Bible, but in its original form, in case you need reminded, was a letter. And it was written to a church in a city called Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. And it was written by a man named Paul who actually planted that church, or at least helped plant that church. And Paul was there and he was their pastor for three years. And there's a lot written about the church in Ephesus. If you look in the book of Acts, And you look at the book of Ephesians, obviously, but if you look at the book of 1 Timothy, that has a lot about the church in Ephesus. In fact, there's more about this church in Ephesus than every other book, or every, excuse me, every other church in the New Testament. Paul was their pastor for three years, and when Paul thinks about the Ephesians, it makes him thankful, and he prays for them all the time. It's because there's a little, there's a little spot in Paul's heart for the church in Ephesus that's different than the other ones. When he was their pastor, he taught there, like I said, for three years, and then he moved on, and he kind of visited some other churches, helped start some other churches, and for for five or six years, he kind of went around doing the same thing in other places. He never stayed as long as he did in Ephesus, and then he got arrested. It It was coming for him the whole time, and he knew it, and finally he got arrested and got put in under house arrest in Rome, and he wrote a letter to the Ephesians. He heard word from one of his runners Tell me what's going on in Ephesus, because I care about them. I pray for them all the time. When I think about them, it makes me joyful. It makes me thankful. What's going on there? And he hears word, and so he writes them a letter. And we have it as the book of Ephesians. I want to bring your attention back for a second to a couple weeks ago. I talked to you about how the church actually got started. Back when, back when Paul was on missionary journey number two of three, I want to remind you of what happened when he got there. Remember, he got there the first time and he dropped off some of his friends and and they kind of started a little house church and then he came back and when he came back, there had been some people that they actually had chosen to follow Jesus. They'd They'd made a decision to follow Christ. And what happens in Acts chapter 19, which is the historical narrative of the planting of the church in Ephesus, it tells us a lot about the setting that Paul was doing all this in. It tells us about this city. What we also know about Ephesus from lots of secular resources is that it was the New York City of of the day. There were 300, maybe 500,000 people in Ephesus, and it was a trade city. It was where everybody came to do business. And so in Ephesus, there's people from every country in the world speaking every language that there is, eating every food that there is. It's a, it's a cultural melting pot. This is where Paul is planting this church. And when he walks in 
In Acts 19, verse 8, 9, and 10, it tells us what the reaction was like when Paul started preaching. Let me just read it to you. It says, Paul entered the synagogue. That's the Jewish place of worship. And he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them, the Jews, became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. That's the name for Christianity at the time. So Paul said, forget it. And he left them. And he took the disciples, the people that believed in Jesus, and they had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. See, all great churches start in schools. This went on for two more years. So that look at this, all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Here's what I want you to notice as Paul goes in there. There were Jews who worshiped in the synagogue. The Jews were descendants of Abraham. The Jews had the law. The Jews were the chosen people of God. And the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds, thousands of years. And some Jews actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, the one that was prophesied, the one that would save them. Didn't come exactly like they thought. He didn't come and rescue them from the oppression of another nation, but he came to save them from their sins. And, and some Jews have chosen to believe that. That's the, the people that are in the way, as it's described in Acts 19. But there's other Jews that go, no, I don't think so. He was supposed to save us from Rome. We don't care as much about our sins. We just want to be free from Rome. So where's the Messiah? Where's the Savior who can do that? And they're still waiting for the Messiah. And get this, in Ephesus, not only were there Jews that were starting to believe in the Messiah, but these Jews that were starting to believe in Jesus told their Gentile friends that they too could believe in Jesus, and that was nuts. That was impossible. Culturally at the time, that was impossible. The, the, the law, strict rule-following Jews couldn't believe that Gentiles were going to be included in the church too. So Paul goes there to teach about the kingdom of God. And when he does that, he's talking about Jesus, who he was, what he did, what it means. And some people just can't wrap their minds around it, so they become, what did, they, what did it say? It said they became obstinate. And I need to be honest. I had to Google that. It means stubborn and unwilling to change their minds. Nobody likes change. I don't even like it when a website requires me to change my password. I, I resist it. I don't want things to change. And, and for thousands of years, there's a certain way of living and a certain way of thinking and a certain set of rules that these people have been following to honor God. And Paul comes in and says, actually... You don't have to do all that anymore. Jesus changed things. He was the Messiah, and now there's so much more freedom to be had, and the people go, ah, I'm just obstinate. I can't wrap my mind around that. I, I had a conversation this week in the lobby of the gym that I work at with a guy who's familiar with Ephesians 2 and 3, and I told him, I said, hey, this weekend I get to talk about Ephesians 2 and 3, and he, he tilted his head back and he said, oh, it just must have been so hard for those Jews to wrap their minds around the change that Paul had come in to initiate. And it's true. 
So Paul says, forget it. He goes over to the local lecture hall for two years, and he wants to make sure that everybody understands as he's preaching in that lecture hall, the good news of Jesus is for everybody. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew. Doesn't matter if you're a good Jew or bad Jew. Doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. The good news of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, is for every human on the face of the earth. Like I said, the Jews were the chosen people of God in the Old Testament. They had the law. They had the temple. And for centuries, in their minds, they were, because of this, far superior to the Gentiles, or it's another word for non-Jews. They were far superior. And there was so much division, and it was caused by so much pride. And I know this is hard to believe, but religious people were struggling with pride. Can you believe that? And I read that passage from Acts to show you that right from the start, there were these splits, these divisions, these categories of people. You stay there, we'll stay here. And there were physical walls that were built up between them. I'll tell you about that in just a second. There was a lot of confusion and a lot of division, to say the least. And so when Ephesians 1 and 2, if you go back and listen to week 2, 3, and 4 of this series, you'll see that Paul is talking about the gospel, the good news. He's saying, we were dead, but God is good. And through Jesus, we can be resurrected and have eternal life. And now, after he's explained that, in the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, he's going to make sure that his readers know who that news is for. Out of division, he's going to give a reason to be unified. In the middle of the chaos and and the confusion, he's going to create some clarity to make sure that everybody understands that the good news of Jesus is for everybody. So I'm going to read a passage a little bit longer than I usually do, but I think it'll be easy to follow along, especially as you consider this Jewish-Gentile split that is happening in Ephesus that people are having their hard times wrapping their minds around. Because not only are the Jews saying, are we sure we're going to let them in? But the Gentiles are over here saying, are you sure you're going to let us in? And so with that in mind, I'm going to read from Ephesians 2.11 all the way through 3.11, but I'll stop along the way and try to explain a little bit better about what it means, all right? So verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul writes to the Christians, to the church in Ephesus. He goes, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and are called uncircumcised, by those who call themselves the circumcision, those are Jews, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, Gentiles, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise. The promises were given to the Jews in the Old Testament without hope and without God in the world. So to summarize where the Gentiles used to be, they were separate from Christ, without hope, without God, and that's a bad place to be. But verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, because of the crucifixion and because of the resurrection, because of what Jesus came to do and did, You who were once far away have been brought near. In other words, the crucifixion was not just for the Jews. It wasn't just for the Gentiles. It was for everybody. 
anybody who is near or far is invited into the gospel. And so to put it, you know, to be very 2023, it doesn't matter how many times you've been to church and what mistakes you've been. It doesn't matter if you feel very near to God or very far to God. It is only the blood of Christ that brings you near to God. It is not your attendance. It is not your lack of cussing. It is not how much you drink. It is not what you do Friday night. It's none of those things that keep you far or near. It is the blood of Christ only that brings a person near to God. And look what he says about Jesus. For he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And I read that and it jumps off the page. It feels like somebody that does movie preview should read that, right? The dividing wall of hostility. And Paul isn't talking about this imaginary wall, a glass ceiling, kind of a sociological barrier. He's actually talking about a wall. Because when the Jews, when they built their temple, this is how they built it. There was an inner court, and that's where the priests could go. You were allowed to go in there if you were from the tribe of Levi, and you were a priest. And there was a wall built around it. Then the men could go up to that wall. Jewish men only could go up to that wall. And then there was a wall around them. And then the women, Jewish women only, could come up to that wall. This is where they were allowed to go. You didn't cross over into an area that you weren't allowed to go. And then around that was another wall, and that was where the Gentiles could go. They were outsiders, psychologically and physically. There was an actual wall. And so when Paul says that Jesus comes, out, Jesus comes in, he is our peace, he destroys the barrier. I wanted to title this message, and I am titling this message, Jesus Christ, the Sledgehammer. <laughs> because he destroys the barrier, man. He, de- he, he knocks down the wall of hostility and makes the two groups one. When I think about this wall, I don't want you to think about a little wall that's four feet high that maybe you could jump over if you had enough athleticism left in you. I want you to picture in your minds if you've ever seen a picture of the Berlin Wall. And I, I can't get into the whole political narrative of how it all came to be, but you gotta understand that in the post-World War II era, Germany was split into a bunch of different sections and Berlin specifically was split into two, East Berlin and West Berlin, and there was a wall 69 miles long that divided the city in half, 12 feet high, and on top there was this rounded top to it so that you couldn't climb over it. But people kept trying, and some people were succeeding. So the people in East Berlin said, we need to build another wall. And so they they built another wall 100 yards into their side so that there was a 100-yard gap between the two walls. And between the two walls, there was sand that was raked out so that they could tell if there were any footprints of somebody trying to cross. And there were guard dogs, always on alert, 306 towers, 20 bunkers for the guards to hide and to stay, and they were licensed to shoot anybody that tried to cross. There were beds of nails that were hidden under the sand so that if you tried to make a break for it, it would stop you. It was physical, but it was sociological just as much Because the people in East Berlin were trying to impede on the freedoms of the people and saying, you can't go as you please. You've got to stay here. Don't you dare try to cross. And if you try to cross, you're going to be killed. And in the same way, you guys, if a Gentile 
Paul got into some big trouble about this. Google it. He brought a Gentile into one of the inner courts and got in big trouble because a Gentile could not cross that wall or they could be killed, legally killed. That's how insider and outsider this was. And in the same way that at 10.45 p.m., On November 9, 1989, the wall fell and Germans from both sides took sledgehammers and popped champagne and just slung their sledgehammers at the wall, chipping it away so that the wall fell and there was freedom. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, the sledgehammer, came in in the New Testament and knocked over the wall and said, there's no insiders and outsiders anymore. I came so that everybody's sins could be forgiven. Jesus, it goes on to describe him. He set aside his flesh, in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile them both to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. No more fighting. You are one Jesus came and preached to people, preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and to you who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Friends, even in the Ephesians church, even in the lecture hall of Tyrannius, as they were gathering for church to hear Paul preach, the Jews would sit over here, and the Gentiles would sit over here, and they were wondering if they could cross the aisle. And Paul's writing, you are one church now, friends. There is no aisle. Sit with somebody you don't know. Sit somewhere else. That might apply to us. Verse 19, Paul keeps talking to the Gentiles. Look at this. You are no longer foreigners or strangers. You're no longer outsiders, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, Jesus Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. He's talking about the church. And in him, you too, Gentiles, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so not only as we as individual people, if you make a decision to follow Christ, not only are you as an individual person indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but this is implying that the church gathered, united, becomes a place where God lives by his spirit. It implies that there's, a, there's an added measure of the Holy Spirit and his power that is only available when the church gets together. That the, when the whole building, when the bricks come together and builds a church, that's the dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And I know people wonder, because I've heard the question and I've heard a lot of people say, I know the question, can I be a good Christian and not go to church? And I think a better way to word that question is, can God be powerfully at work in my life apart from being a part of Christ's body, the church? And I'm just relaying the message that in the New Testament, the answer over and over and over is no way. No way. 
And you might ask, well, then how committed to the church should I be? And I would say, well, how much do you want to know Christ? How powerful do you want God to be in your life? Church, local church, is plan A for God to reach the world supernaturally. And so if we remove ourselves from that, then in some ways, I'm not trying to be offensive, but we, we, we lose the right to ask for the power of God in our lives if we've cut ourselves off from the means to that power. In Ephesians 2.10, the last verse of last week's message, I ran out of time and I didn't get to explain it fully. But in Ephesians 2.10, let me summarize it. It says, if you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus, if your sins are forgiven, then in that scenario, God has prepared and advanced good works for you to do, for you to live out, steps for you to take. God has prepared them for you. And the bottom line is that some of the good works that I am supposed to do, that God has prepared me to do, are in your life. And some of the good works that you have been prepared to do, that are prepared for you to do, are in my life. And how? How could you do what God wants you to do if we're never together? So how could we walk that out if we're not ever gathered together as a church? So because of all this, Paul in chapter 3, I don't know if I'm going to speed up, but I'm going to keep moving. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles, he's saying, listen, if I hadn't done all this, I wouldn't be in jail, but it's worth it to me. Surely, you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written you briefly. So you might be asking yourself, after I've just clarified this whole The Gentiles are now in. The two are now one. There's no more wall. You might be thinking to yourself, did God just come up with this plan as it was going on? And the answer that Paul's saying is no. This has been a mystery that has been hidden for generations and is now being revealed. Look at what he says. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. In the past, I've already explained this, God was just for the Jews. In fact, did you know this? When Jesus, uh, when he came back from the dead and gave them their marching orders, go into all the world and tell people what I've done, the Jews for a while just went and told Jews. Even though Jesus had lived a lot of his life telling a lot of Gentiles about salvation, The Jews just couldn't wrap their minds around it. And so for a while, they just told the Jews. In fact, for the first 14 chapters of Acts, there's this tension in there where Paul and Peter are mad at each other because they can't agree on whether or not the gospel is for everybody or not. And so there's this inner turmoil wrestling and Paul's saying, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, the outsiders, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Here's the last four verses. You ready? I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Paul says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everybody to create some clarity for anybody who has questions. The administration of this mystery, 
which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. I'm going to finish with verse 10 today. Well, I guess 10 and 11, but I'm going to focus on 10. His intent in doing all of this, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the beautiful wisdom of God is displayed through the diversity of the church, the global church, to the entire universe. On both a micro and a macro level, diversity in the church showcases the manifold wisdom of God. Like a diamond's beauty is magnified when you look at it from different angles. God's wisdom is magnified when you look at the church and all of the different people that are in it. Let's talk about our church for a second, the micro level. Three Creeks Church, local church here in Gehenna. Are there any Jews in here? Are there any Gentiles? Jeff's a Gentile. Pretty sure you all are. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. What Paul's saying is, that's, that's what makes the church beautiful if there was some diversity. Let's try this one. Anybody under 30 in the house? Yeah, anybody over 40 in the house? Yeah, we've got child dedications today, so some of you guys are here. When the church is diverse, it is beautiful. It actually showcases the wisdom of God. Don't raise your hands for this one. Ready for this? Any Republicans in the house? Hey, I told you not to raise your hands. Any Democrats in the house? The point is that diversity in the church showcases the wisdom, the beautiful, manifold wisdom of God. Is there anybody here that makes less than 50,000? Is there anybody here that makes more than 150,000? The beauty of that, it's amazing. Is there anybody born and raised in the USA? Was there anybody born and raised in another country? If there is any diversity in this room, and I know that there is, that diversity showcases the beautiful, manifold wisdom of God. Are you single? Are you married? Are you divorced? Do you have kids? Do you have no kids? The diversity in that, because we are different, that showcases the manifold wisdom of God. Do you live inside 270? Do you live outside 270? Do you live in New Albany? (laughs) It showcases the beautiful, manifold wisdom of God. Is anybody interested in the Super Bowl? Is anybody interested in D&D? I don't even know what that is. But I know that there are different incomes and different families and different backgrounds and different professions and different places that we live and different dreams and different interests. And that in and of itself, it shows the manifold wisdom of God. In our church, there's a lot of people here that the only thing they have in common is Christ. And these other things about us, they're still true. It's important to understand that. They're still true. But when you look at it in light of the gospel, they become a lot less significant and it doesn't become our identity. It doesn't become the first thing that we are. The first thing we are is a Christian saved by grace through faith. 
When the world says, build walls between you, the gospel says, tear them down. On a macro level, so we just talked about our church. Let's be honest, there are some places where we don't look so beautiful. We might even be ugly in some categories. And my prayer is that over the course of the life of Three Creeks Church, we would become more and more beautiful in every category of diversity. In age and race and gender and in all of it, I just pray that our church would showcase the wisdom of God in that way. On a macro level, I've been fortunate enough to get to travel to a couple different countries, 24 or five that I can count. My, my parents traveled for work and, and missions work and I, I just got to tag along. It was incredible. And I, I uh, there isn't one culture I've been in, including our own, that doesn't implicitly think of themselves better in some ways than other people. Psychologists tell us, and I think you'll agree, that there's something fundamental to human nature where we're always trying to lift ourselves up above others. There's a drive inside of us to prove that we're better. And so as a nation, we find things about ourselves or our group that set us apart from others. Either we're smarter or we're better athletes because we won more gold medals or we're more courageous in battle We've built a better country, we've been more successful, we've got better families, we treat women better, and we place around our culture imaginary walls and sometimes physical walls that distinguishes us and makes us feel like we're better than the outside. And then even inside of our country, within us, we create even more walls. If we make a lot of money, we just kind of build a wall up around ourselves and we subconsciously or consciously think that we're better than the people that don't make as much money as us. Or maybe you got a really high SAT score, you went to a certain school, and so you implicitly think of yourself as better than another group. For many of us, the most defining wall is our political persuasion. It's the people you agree with that are good and educated. And if you don't believe me, watch CNN or Fox and listen to them talk about the people on the other side. Just just listen to it for 20 minutes. It's hostility. It's division. There's anger on both sides. There's lines that have been drawn. There's literally psychological, philosophical walls that we put up and we categorize everybody. And Jesus Christ, the sledgehammer, tears down the walls of hostility and breaks down the barriers because of the blood of Christ. The global church, the global Christian church, is the most diverse institution on the face of the earth. Because of the blood of Christ, the global Christian church is the most diverse institution on the face of the earth. You might, I just want to read some stats to you. You might think that the USA is the center of Christianity. And in 1900, you wouldn't have been that far off because 70% of Christians 120 years ago lived in the United States or Europe, but today 70% of Christians do not live in the United States or Europe. There are more Christians in, in Africa than there are in every European nation combined. On any given Sunday, there are more Christians in church in Kenya than there are in Canada. This past Sunday, there were more Presbyterians in Ghana than there were in Scotland, which is where that originated. Brazil sends more missionaries to other countries than does Britain or Canada. In 1970, listen to this, in 1970, 53 years ago, there were no legally functioning churches in China. 
And today it is estimated that there are as many Christians in China as there are in the United States of America. The largest church in Korea in one service has more people attending it than Canada's biggest 10 churches combined. The most recent explosion of Christians of gospel growth has been in Muslim countries where two thirds of the world's unreached people now live. And I hear it sometimes and I go, I hear people say Christianity is a Western thing. They should keep it to themselves. They should stop imposing their views on everybody else. That's just not even true. If anything, it is a Middle Eastern thing that has made its way to the West and now continues to span around the globe. And if I asked you, what is the one event in the world that brings everyone together? What event does everybody in the world care about? Something that might come to mind would be the World Cup final where people in every country in the world tuned in to see Argentina battle France just two months ago. You guys, 1.12 billion people watched France and Argentina in the World Cup final. You might think that's pretty impressive, but every year in mid-April, there is a bigger event. Last year, 2.56 billion people celebrated Easter, the resurrection of Christ in every country in the world. That is unbelievable. The Christian global church is the most diverse institution on the face of the earth, and that showcases the manifold wisdom of God, that there are no insiders, there are no outsiders. And so to be a Christian, it doesn't matter where your family's from, your ethnic heritage, how much you make, where you live, doesn't matter. We are all brought near by the blood of Christ. And that's why Paul writes, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the sledgehammer. So if you're old, young, married, single, rich, poor, iPhone, Android, been here a while, first time, Jesus Christ is for everybody who receives him. So what? So as a a local micro church here in Gehenna, what's our response? It's important, right? I shared a couple weeks ago that in this whole series, the first six weeks kind of feel a little heady, theological, not a lot of practical takeaways. The second half of Ephesians and the second half of our series is loaded with practical takeaways. It's important now in week five that we go, okay, in light of what we now know, what are we going to now do? Here's some, uh, some homework for you. Today, today, If you consider yourself a part of the Three Creeks family, I want you, before you leave today, before you get in your car today, to find someone in this church who the only thing you have in common is Christ. Find somebody in this church, the only thing you have in common is Christ. Someone that's a different age than you, someone who's a different stage of life than you, somebody with different interests, a different set of friends, a different social circle, and find somebody who the only thing you have in common with Christ, and I want you to try to make dinner plans with them. You can invite yourself to their house, or you can invite them to your house. McKenna in the back told me that if anybody wants to come to her house, she loves making shawarmas. And you only have to do it once. No long-term commitment. You don't have to be friends. You can cancel anytime. I want you to find one person today 
who you don't normally sit next to, who you don't normally talk to, who's in a different social circle than you, and make dinner plans in the month of February with them today. And as you go there, as you're on your way there, I want you to just feel weird. You know what I'm saying? What are we going to talk about? I want it to feel weird. And I want you to just barrel through the conversation. And as you leave, I want you to remember the manifold wisdom of God that the church, that Three Creeks Church and the diversity in it is beautiful and it shows how good God is. That it's only the blood of Christ that draws us near. And it is the fact that Christ has saved us. That's the most important thing about us. And it's what we have in common. Speaking of dinner, Jesus had dinner with 12 of his disciples and they were a pretty random bunch. A lot of diversity among the disciples and Jesus took the bread and he took the cup and he broke the bread and he passed it around and he took a sip of the cup and he passed it around and they all took a bite and they all took a sip and in that moment, Jesus was becoming our peace. He knew what he was about to do. It didn't, didn't matter these guys' background. didn't matter that one of them was kind of rich and a bunch of them were pretty poor. It didn't matter. He said, it's the blood of Christ that draws us near. And they took communion for the first time. And then he said, you guys should do this too. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this to remember that I'm dying for everybody. And so as a church, 2,000-ish years later, we do it in remembrance of him. And so we're going to take communion together. And I want you to, I just, I really hope that you stand in line next to somebody that is so different than you. So different, so young, so old, guy, girl. I just want him to be so different than you. And in that moment, you'll actually be grateful that God didn't save you or save them because of anything they did or where they were born. It is the blood of Christ that draws those who are far near. And that's it. And that's amazing. So today, conveniently, we have six tables. Can you believe it? Man, what a miracle. There's six tables. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, actually, because there's a gluten-free option in the back. I'm going to leave the stage after I pray and would love to invite you. If you're a Christian, if you've made a decision to follow Christ, you get to take communion. And if that's something that you're still thinking about or exploring or you're not sure, then respectfully, I just ask that you would just stay in your seat and reserve that for a time when you put your faith in Christ. And then by all means, this is, a, this is an inv invitation to everybody who considers themselves a Christ follower. You can take communion and then, and then we'll sing together at the end. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this book of Ephesians. Thank you that there are no insiders or outsiders. Thank you, Father, that you came for everybody. You came for every person that would believe in you. And so as we take communion now, I pray that we would stand in line next to people that are different than us. And I pray as we're in the hallway today that you would allow people to collide in the hallway with people who only have you in common. And would you fill those, those spaces those dining rooms with your presence and would you let people leave from those dinner meetings marveling at the grace of God in Jesus name
Amen. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com. Thank you.